Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Less things to deal with. All right, mask off iPad Bible. Um, before we get started this morning, I want to give uh, just a brief update. And well, first, good morning. Um, I'm glad you're here. I don't know if anybody else woke up to the uh, um, massive bolt of lightning that struck seemingly right by our house. Anybody? It was like two o'clock in the morning, and we all got up. No, if you didn't wake up, man, I'm. We kind of woke up with like, what happened? Who's here? Uh, but I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm, uh, it's it's uh, good to be together. Uh, and with that, uh, let me give you kind of a quick update before we get going. Um, gosh, was it March or April? A little, little less than a year ago uh, when the pandemic first hit. Uh, initially, there was an order, right, for, for everything to kind of close down, close shop. And so we scrambled. Um, we, we got our high-quality production with a couple of cameras and tried to see if we could get charter to keep our internet on the entire time, and uh, YouTube to actually carry the whole service. We struggled through a few weeks, uh, and lo and behold, we finally ended up getting uh, the service online, and we were able to continue on. And man, uh, Refuge, you knocked it out of the park. You stayed connected, and you, you were here. Um, and so we, we kept it like that for a little while. Uh, I believe it was July. Uh, we, they were allowing things to, to kind of come back in order, and we took our time and wanted to be wise with that. July, we put some restrictions on the service gathering. We put this uh, beautifully chaotic organization to the chairs that we, you see ahead of us now, uh, and we started gathering 50 or less, uh, and so here again. Um, and I just want to, and then, so we kept doing that, and then uh, October, right around as, as all the fall holidays started to hit, the numbers started to skyrocket. And so we had asked before for, to, to wear masks at least until uh, you get to your seat, and then we said with the numbers skyrocketing, let's, we need to keep the masks on the whole time. Uh, and now, like, like a breath of fresh air, like a cool breeze, it seems like there is hope on the horizon with spring coming and warmer weather and numbers falling drastically and vaccines going out and... And so um, we're going to, uh, I, I don't want to assign any necessarily like hardline dates, but a couple of things that we're hoping to do. We want to increase, we've, we've limited capacity to 50, although we've never really had to. And, and last week we blew that out of the water, and, uh, which is okay um, with, uh, with baptism. Um, but also we know that uh, there, we, you know, I know there's several parents uh, who would like to come, but when, when there's no childcare, sometimes that can be crazy. And we've said bring your crazy in here, we're, we're all over, uh, and we're doing it, and, uh, and that's cool, and some parents still hesitant about that, and that's fine. So we want, uh, let me give you an update on some things that we're doing. Um, our hope is to very soon, within the next couple few weeks, we're hoping before Easter uh, to be able to have at least a classroom or maybe two classrooms available for some of the younger kids. Uh, following the same guidelines that they would have, you know, that they would follow at a preschool or at a school, um, and so that allowing for some parents to be able to come back and and uh, and do that, we're going to up the capacity a little bit in here, um, and uh, and then we're going to kind of, we're going to 
lean back, back to where we were on the mask thing. If you can wear masks when you come in uh, while you're up and moving around, but while you're at your seat, it's totally, uh, we'll, we'll invite you as you feel comfortable uh, to keep mask on or off. Um, and I just want to tell you, uh, Refuge, uh, I've heard sto- horror stories. Um, the people of God, kind of being the people of God uh, over the last, we, we, got, a, we got a good 6,000 year track record as we go through this thing of the chaotic people of God and refuge, you have been amazing. Um, this is an opportunity for, for very, very, very polarizing opinions. Uh, and, and convictions have been strong, which is okay. Uh, opinions have been strong, which is okay. But there has been a level of harmony uh, and unity here that, that has been amazing. Um, and so um, I think, man, I think that is to be rejoiced in and celebrated because that has not been common. And so I am immensely grateful uh, for, for us as a body, um, but we are going to be moving back in some of these directions. Uh, this is not the time to ease back on our fight for unity, uh, fight for harmony uh, above all else. There's nothing in here that says you can't have differing opinions, uh, but there is something in here that says there is a higher order and a higher uh, God that we worship that should bring unity before we dive into the things that separate us. So um, <clears throat> that said, that I, I, I made all the announcements that we need to make. So uh, again, we're looking forward to maybe doing Easter outside uh, and uh, even nearby if we can make that happen. Uh, and so there's some fun stuff on the horizon. We've planned for some outdoor services uh, again as the weather gets nicer. Um, so we're excited about that. With that, let's jump back in to Far As the Curse is Found, the, the sermon series that we've been going through. Um, when I was a kid, <clears throat> right up the street uh, from us lived Old Man Summers. Old Man Summers was great. He was very nice, very friendly. Um, <clears throat> me and my friend Jeff would ride our bikes around all the time. He always waved to us. He, we would, if we would stop by, he would tell us a story. He would talk with us. He was always super friendly. Well, one day Old Man Summers had to replace in his, in his walkway one of the uh, part of the pavement had been damaged, and so he was going to replace a section of his walkway, and it was a hot day out, and he got out there early and tried to get it going before the, before the heat set in, and he had to break up uh, the block that was in there, and he had to clear it out, and then he had to, you know, mix and pour uh, the cement and get it set and all this kind of stuff, and, and uh, it was just, uh, it was grueling work. Now I can attest to how grueling that work is. And so old man Summers in the heat of the afternoon, he, he, had, he had placed everything, and he was ready, and he went inside just to cool off while the cement set. And as young boys driving by, I mean, what are, what's a boy to do, you know? Um, how, how in the world are, are you supposed to not be, fall into that temptation? And, um, and so sure enough, uh, sure enough, Jeff and I left our mark uh, our imprint in that new walkway. And um, old man Summers looked out to check on the progress of his labor and saw a few couple sets of hands in there, and uh, he lost it. And he came outside screaming and yelling and just irate. And his wife tried to console him. 
honey, honey, why, why are you so angry? Don't, don't forget, you love these boys. And he said, I may love them in the abstract, but I hate them in the concrete. <laughs> this week, we're going to look at God as he reveals himself finally in the concrete. We've had story after story all through Genesis, the first part of Exodus, of God showing himself here and there. <clears throat> we've seen him provide miraculously, but, but we've never seen this full picture of who he is. And so this week, we're going to look at God as he reveals himself concretely, firmly, distinctly, who he, who he is. What's he about? What is this relationship that he's got with Israel? What's he doing? What's his plan? Uh, and, and how is it going to work? And really, also what we're going to see as he reveals himself is it gets a little bit messy. Uh, it's not quite as neat and tidy as we would like to think. So um, <clears throat> to do that, uh, God has delivered his people. I'm going to catch up on the story after we read this. God has delivered his people out of Egypt, and he's finally going to give us a fuller picture of who he is and what he is up to with his people. So we're going to read from Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, and then on in Exodus 20, which if you know your Bible, Exodus 20 is the beginning of the what? Ten Commandments. Very good. Uh, I could have said the ten what? <laughs> All right. So, chapter 19, verse 3 through 6, and on into chapter 20. Uh, God says this through Moses. He says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey, indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples. All the earth is mine, but you shall be a treasured possession. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then on down into Exodus 20, where we begin the Ten Commandments, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you can kind of almost insert that, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven or above or that is in, earth, or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, every week as we've gone through this, I want to kind of give a quick recap to catch us up to where we are. Uh, we started with, obviously, creation and rebellion, Genesis 1 through 3, and then, and then Genesis chapters 4 through 11, we see 
kind of creation and rebellion, that story told over and over again. God establishes, man rebels and messes it up, God punishes and then starts again. And then in chapter 12, we see that God is going to begin to carry out his mission on the earth through a people. And so he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he guides and protects Abraham. He promises Abraham a son. And at 99 years old, God gives Abraham a son. Who doesn't want that, right? At 99. Uh, And God gives Abraham a son. And so now Abraham knows that this God will be faithful to his promise. 25 years of waiting for this. Um, But there's not a whole lot more that God discloses necessarily about himself. We see that he's faithful. We see that this promise is going to happen. And then Abraham has descendants. He has Isaac, uh, who was born at uh, at the age of 99, uh, to Abraham and Sarah. And And then Isaac has Jacob. And what they see is God defending them. Jacob, God chooses the younger over the, over the older. Jacob is the salesman, and he gets chosen over Esau, who's the strong, masculine hunter. And so we begin to see that this God is different from other gods. There's a uniqueness in this God to the God of the surrounding nations. But still, they didn't fully get the, the full picture of who God is. And then God uses Jacob's son, Joseph, uh, Joseph, through trial, through being betrayed by his brother, uh, trusts God through incredibly difficult circumstances. And eventually what happens through Joseph is God brings his people to Egypt. He, uh, and he saves them from a famine. And he saves Egypt from a famine because of Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. And then last week we talked about how God's people grew in Egypt. They had ceased to, and then as they grew, they had ceased to be a blessing and became a threat to the people of Egypt, to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so he enslaved them where they were in Egypt for 400 years. And then last week we looked at God's deliverance and how God made himself known even more in his actions and how he delivered uh, the people of God. He came down to be with them and his presence was with them and he miraculously delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then he's going to form, this week what we're going to look at is he's going to make another covenant with his people. His first covenant was with Noah where he saves Noah and then he promises I will not destroy the world again. Then his covenant with Abraham, I will make out of you a great nation and a people and I will give you a land. And then this week, uh, and, and the blessing that he gives uh, Abraham in, in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation, and then f- uh, from you I will make my blessings known to all the nations, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And if you uh, remember, we talked about God's blessing being his presence, being with his people, and so wherever they went, if they, if they were received, God's blessing and his presence would be there. And so initially, Egypt actually received the blessing of God, the presence of God. And they became the most powerful nation in the world because of Joseph's dream. But, what we'll see, but then what we also looked at last week is they also received the curse of God. When they began to curse the people of God and enslave them, God came down and avenged his people. And now God is going to make uh, what, what is called the Mosaic covenant. It's the longest and most uh, extensive covenant that God makes. And the other name that this is called, what Moses revealed, is called the law. 
And it starts with the Ten Commandments, but it's going to contain a whole lot more than just the Ten Commandments. There's going to be cultural laws, there's going to be temple laws, uh, and, and all of this stuff uh, is going to be sacrificial laws. All of this stuff is going to be revealed to the people of God. It's also the first covenant that God makes with his people as a whole. It's no longer, he made the covenant with Abraham, but now this has become a people. So part of that is, is being fulfilled, and God makes his covenant through Moses with his people. All right? So, <clears throat> we see the formation of this covenant in Exodus 20, when God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Have no other gods before me. Now, I'm going to go on a tangent here for just a second. My wife and I were, were on a date night, and we were out driving around looking for a place to eat, and, and we weren't going to go here, but we drove past uh, Golden Corral. Right. Um, so, and, and it started me thinking, have any of the cafeteria-style, the, the buffet-style restaurants, have, I wonder if any of them have actually survived these unprecedented times, um, if they've made it, because I have no idea how you would do that. Like, how, would, how do you safely... How have we ever safely uh, gone through, you know, a buffet-style meal? But I remember as a kid, man, I used to love uh, buffet-style restaurants. Um, like uh, Shoney's? Um, was it Bonanza? No? Ponderosa? Bonanza. Ponderosa? I know one of those had, yeah. See, we're going back. Um, and like first cafeteria, I was old at a young age. Um, and, uh, and so it, it, there used to be an analogy about how um, God is not like a cafeteria style or buffet style where you can't just pick what you want, you know, and leave behind what you want. But I'm going to make a redemptive analogy of cafeteria style food when it comes to God. Um, when we look at through the Old Testament, it's, it's messy. We like to think that there are nice, clear categories, and we put this here, and we put this here, and never the two shall meet. But if you've ever eaten in a cafeteria-style restaurant, you know that that's not true. There's always peas that have worked their way into the mashed potatoes. You're never just getting mashed potatoes. You're getting a, a helping of green beans in there as well. Um, the bacon bits. You cannot get bacon bits and not have shredded cheddar cheese in there as well, right? And the croutons have all like the little seeds in there too. And the croutons are just like a breeding ground. And then when it comes to dessert, if you're not getting the, the ice cream thing, forget about it. You're getting all the desserts, any scoop you take. That's the way it works. Right? It's a little messy. Throughout Scripture, the, 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 the authors of Scripture have a way of telling us. They have a way of using things that humans are familiar with, especially uh, in their historical context. This is what it looks like, but then they kind of explode the meaning. They break down the nice, clean-cut categories that we think this is just this and no more. This is just this and no more. And, uh, and they have a way of explaining things in, in ways that we understand that are beyond just like the strict dichotomies, that this is only gravy and this is only for salad dressing. And, and, and when we talk about sin, oftentimes we talk about sin as only rebellion or sin as only addiction or sin as only woundedness. And the reality is 
when we're walking through the cafeteria of Scripture, sin is a nice, nasty mix of all of that stuff. Yes, it's primarily mashed potatoes, but rest assured, there's some more stuff in there. Okay? God is going to establish his covenant with his people uh, through a commonly well-known treaty, style of treaty. Now, there were two types of treaties in the, old, in, in the ancient world. This was a dog-eat-dog type of world, right? You, it was either kill or be killed. Um, and uh, there were two types of treaty. There was what was called a parity treaty, not, it was P-A-I-R-I-T-Y, where you would have two nations of similar size and power that would make a treaty together, and they would operate. They would often exchange some goods and services together, and then they would, they would make an alliance uh, that, would, that they would not attack each other, and they, so they built safety in the realms around them. But there was another type of treaty. If you were a small and helpless nation, if you were a small and helpless people, and that's called, it's called technically a suzerainty, suzerainty treaty or a suzerain vassal treaty, okay? Don't think that's the last time you're going to hear that today. You're going to hear it a lot, all right? So get, get, get ready for it. What would happen? A suzerain was a nation that had power. It's broken down from an old Hittite form of, of making treaties. The suzerain nation, or more likely the suzerain king, was a king that had power, They were strong. A vassal king or a vassal nation was a nation that was weak. The vassal nation needed somebody to stand up for them and defend them or else they were done for. And so they would seek after these types of treaties, uh, this type of treaty, not multiple, just one. And you would make a treaty with a suzerain. In exchange, you would would give them... uh, a, a tithe, you would give them, you would, you would pay money to this other king or you would pay goods and services to this other king uh, and you would pledge unyielding loyalty and obedience. You were obligated, you were subjected to this king and to this nation. The dumbest thing you could do as a vassal nation was to cheat on that treaty. The dumbest thing you could do This was your Lord, not in the divine sense, but in the hierarchical sense. The dumbest thing you could do was try to go make a treaty with another Lord. You were done for. Okay? Um, This is what God uses. This form is how God shows this covenant that he is going to make with Israel. Let me give you some elements. There are several elements to this type of treaty, to, this, um, uh, to the suzerain-vassal treaty. You had the preamble. The preamble would identify both nations that were participating. It's usually pretty heavyweight on the vassal nation and what they were obligated to, but both nations had roles to play in that. Um, the next element would give you historical actions that the suzerain had done to remind the vassal not only uh, of what uh, they have done, but also to remind the vassal of the obligation that they have to this superior nation. We have, guaranteed, we have promised to protect you. We have protected you against these people. Don't forget that. You're obligated to us. Then they would read the stipulations and the requirements that would regulate the treaty between the two nations. Again, much greater weight on the vassal nation, but also what they had to pay, what they had to give, what loyalty looked like, what their obligations were, what their obedience was, 
Uh, and then they would often, there would often be a public reading of this agreement that would remind both parties and their peoples of their responsibilities, as well as uh, their treaty obligations. And then they would actually have documents that, I don't know how, that they would sign or notarize in some way, and each nation would call their divinities to be kind of the, notari the, the notaries on their documents. So they had to get them notarized. And they would read them out loud, and there was often a repetition of reading these out loud year after year just to remind each party, especially the vassal, what you've committed to, to be defended. And then finally, uh, the covenant would describe, or this treaty would describe what would happen when things go well, what the blessings of the treaty would be if things go well, and what were the ramifications or the curses if you, if you t attempt to uh, get outside of this treaty, if you break this treaty. You can probably hear a lot of what God does and how he sets this up with the people of God, and in Exodus, you can hear uh, a lot of the similarities of one of these treaties. But this is more than just a treaty that God establishes with his people. This is a covenant. And so there's some similarities, but there's also some beautiful and glorious distinctions. Here's some insights that this type of treaty can give us um, into what God does here. Uh, it gives us insight into the law that God gives. We've, we've uh, talked before, we went through the Ten Commandments a while ago and we looked at the difference between the law that we have now, which is kind of a central legislation for all people. Uh, this is a, a covenant law that's more built on relationship. And to violate that is actually a violation of the relationship. It's like household rules. If you went to college and you had you know, four or five people living in a house and you had different household rules, what night, who had to do dishes and all that kind of stuff, this is, that's, that's more of the nature uh, of this kind of law. But also, um, the law is a function of the covenant. It's an agreement of their life together. And there are legal consequences to breaking the law, but what's, what actually precedes the, the, the nitpicky, did you do this or did you do this, is the relationship of the people. That's what is most important. That precedes the law. Uh, I've shared this before. When our kids were young, our older two were younger, um, I felt like all I was doing was saying, no, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. No, 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 no. That was my best parenting line, right? No, 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 no. Um, and uh, I felt like all I was doing that. I got a chance to sit down with a, with a, a guy who is... Um, uh, he was a seminary president and had a tremendous amount of wisdom, and he had struggled with the same things that I had struggled with. And one of the things that he told me was uh, that he had heard from another guy is to speak identity first, right? You're my child. I love you. Stop doing that. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but to speak identity first. And certainly we see God doing this. When God has to give warnings and God has to, get, he gives the covenant with Israel, um, you are my people, I am your God. And this is what you are called to. This is not simply a politically transactional relationship. It is a love relationship. It is a covenant relationship. 
Another insight that we can see here is, it, yes, Israel is bound to God through their, through, God makes this covenant with them, and they are bound to him as his people. But also, God binds himself to this people. He binds himself. He's obligated himself to fulfill all the promises that he's made to this people, regardless of whether they live up to their end of the bargain or not. Uh, and there are a million potential applications to this point, but the one that seems to me most gloriously made throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, God has not hitched himself to, to, like the, to Tom Brady, right? Jeremy's, oh, he went out there. Right? God has not, has not hitched himself to the, uh, to the number one seed. He's not, he's not, if he would have wanted to do that, he would have picked Assyria, he would have picked Egypt, he would have picked Babylon, um, that's not who he has attached himself to. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this happening over and over again. God doesn't pick, if you remember a few weeks ago in the Tower of Babel, God doesn't pick Nimrod, the strong and mighty who establishes all kinds of cities. God doesn't say Nimrod's my man because he's the strongest and, and, the, and the biggest. He goes from the line of Shem, which would produce Abraham. When God picks Jacob over Esau, Jacob is like a kind of a slimy character in, in the Bible, and, and he's a salesman, and he's kind of a huckster, and God picks him, not Esau, the older, the firstborn, the strong, rugged, hunter, masculine one. God will pick David. David is the lastborn, and David will be the, proto, the archetype as king with his humble heart. God does not use the strongest nation, he uses the weakest nation to make his greatness known. God uses the humility of those who follow him, not our might, not our strength, but his. Not only this, but God has obligated himself to be faithful to do this through to completion. And as the people of God become the church, I would... I believe what we see with the church is most beautiful, most unified, most missional self when she's actually facing persecution. We're never called to seek after it, but there's a purification that happens in the people of God when they face persecution. And, what, and, and when we're wise, we should listen to the voice of the persecuted church to hear what they might have to say to us. God has bound himself to this people. Another element that we see with this type of treaty is the importance of historical action. God's provision. When giving or reminding the vassal, the lesser, the weaker, the people of God, reminding them of their obligation and their obedience to follow him, God always precedes that with, this is what I have done. I have delivered you. I have rescued you. Um... Sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I have a tendency if I come before God before with a need and it's like we're both showing up for the first time and I fail to look at history. God has never said, the God of Scripture has never said, close your eyes and just believe against anything else that I'm true and, I'll, and we'll make it, I'll make it true. God has revealed himself in time and history. What we have here, the Bible, is not simply a theological treatise. It is actually a history of all that God has done. 
I have brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember, I defended you. Um, one of the most encouraging books for me to reference, I usually do it right, right around this time of year, right around Easter, it's a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, it's by a guy named Richard Bauckham. It's better as a reference than it is an enjoyable read because it's a lot of academic stuff. But basically what Bauckham does is he takes a look at history and the eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus. And from biblical sources, extra-biblical sources, cultural sources, all over the place. And from a historical standpoint, it is virtually impossible to deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. When I struggle, when I'm wrestling with my faith, when I am, is this worth it? Uh, God, where are you? What settles me, sometimes I, you know, God, just let me sense your presence, let me know that you are here, let me read scripture and sit in your presence, and those things are helpful, but honestly, what steadies my faith more than anything is the reminder that this is actually historically true. To deny the resurrection of Jesus is not bad theology, it's bad history. And that is helpful for me in repentance and faith and trust and obedience and then a final insight that we get from this type of treaty and the elements that it contains is the importance of liturgy, the reminders and the restating, reenacting of the terms of this agreement and this covenant. This was a practice that was done publicly. Usually once a year, the, both parties, the, the suzerain and the vassal, would stand publicly. They would call their, their deities and their people to bear witness and bear testimony. And they remind each other, this is the obligation that we have both done. We will defend you, and this is your obedience and your loyalty. And they would read it out loud because everybody had to be aware. We had to be reminded of this. God did this often. He instructed his prophets often to instill uh, in the people to remember these things. Perhaps the well-known recitation of this covenant throughout all of Scripture takes place in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally means second law. And what's happening in Deuteronomy is Moses is reminding his people, this is the law, this is, this is the, the covenant that we have entered. And it's important that we remember this because we're about ready to get into this land, the land that God promised. And so we need to revisit this. This is a review session. So that we remember what we've done. And in Exodus chapter six, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, this is called the Shema, which basically just means listen. This is what Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And just listen and hear that treaty being read and restated, okay? Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may, be multiplied, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your might. Sorry, with all your heart and your soul and with all of your might. Mind gets added. Um, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
Talk about them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them on sign, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Don't forget. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you didn't build and houses full of good things that you didn't fill and cisterns that you didn't dig and vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant, when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget. It was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear, and you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. It is also the word of the Lord. Why do we need these reminders? Because we're quick to forget. So what we do every week, when we gather to worship every week, this is why we give the reminder, we're here to tell this story every week because we're so quick to forget. We replay this covenant, we redo this treaty. We remind ourselves what our suzerain has done, our great defender, and that we are his people called to obey and be beholden to him. But there are some distinctions, and I promise we'll go through this part quick. Have you guys had enough of the suzerain vassal? You you got it down? All right. Here are some distinctions. God's people are far more than simply a vassal. What God does throughout the Hebrew scriptures is that he uses things that people are already familiar with, things we already know. He does circumcision, uh, the, the mark of distinction, and this kind of treaty. And he, he uses things that we're familiar with, but then he gives them and explodes them so much more depth and meaning. For God with his people, yes, this is about a king and his subjects and this nation that is obligated to him to obey, but it's so much more. God is also referred to as Father. That type of relationship can never be addressed as a political arrangement. My kids will tell you there's times when I do well as a dad, or at least adequate, uh, and there's times when we rather not talk about. Um, but we will talk about them because we're going to be honest and not sweep stuff under the rugs. Uh, I desire that my kids obey the rules, do what I say. What gets me more upset than anything is when the kids disobey mom's rules and then I come in, you know, just guns blaring. And uh, that, that gets bad. But sometimes when I remember, never, never does their disobedience threaten their relationship as my child and I am their father. And sometimes when I remember, because I'm, it's so far off my radar, of course not. But I think sometimes they think that. Have I done enough? And sometimes when I remember, I will tell them, you are my son, you are my daughter. Nothing will change that. Nothing can change that. Nothing will change that. I want for your good. I want for you to trust me. I want to be on your side. I love you. 
And your obedience or your disobedience cannot alter our relationship as father and child. You will always be my son. You will always be my daughter. That is never up for grabs. How much more with God? God is a king. He has obligated himself to his people, but he's also a father who deeply and perfectly loves his children. One of the things that the Suzerain Vassal Treaty always makes sure to, to make known is just how far apart these nations are, right? This nation is great and mighty. This nation has nothing, right? That's part of the treaty is to make that gap as wide as possible, make it known to remind, again, remind the vassal just how lowly you are. Yes, there are times when we need to hear, I am but a worm. But there's also times that we need to hear, I am your father. A family relationship, those distinctions aren't as important. Yes, there are times when I have to say, I'm your dad, that's why. <laughs> but, but that's not the point in a family relationship. What is the point is the closeness and the intimacy and the intimacy and the trust. Surely Israel is more than a vassal to God. God is also portrayed as the husband to the bride, his people, Israel, and to us, the church. And in some of these ways, we see God portrayed in very real, very painful, very familiar roles. The dad of disobedient kids, the husband of a wife who deserts him, uh, what we see in, in Hosea. And God in very intimate, uh, we see him in very intimate, familial roles. In the husband and wife relationship, he is the faithful husband. And in that type of relationship, disobedience is not simply a legal consequence. It, it is adultery, it's betrayal at, among the deepest levels. And yet, God is portrayed not only as a loving and patient husband, but also the one that we see in the book of Hosea comes after and pursues the one who hurts him the deepest. That he loves and comes after her and rescues her again. The one who rescued his bride out of slavery uh, in the first place and she uh, voluntarily walks away and puts herself back into that role and God comes after her again. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I think it's important. In this picture, historically, uh, there has been uh, at times a kind of a patriarchal way of always pay, uh, portraying this in gender stereotypes, Okay. It's the wife that leaves. It's the wife that walks away. It's the wife that has done these things. It's the bride. Hear me on this. Certainly women in that day followed along, but it was the men of Israel who led the bride. Okay, it was the priests, it was the leaders, it was the kings. So lest we think that the patriarchy gets a free pass on any of that, sin is rampant. We see it in every gender, okay? But please don't let this be abused to point as, well, it's the woman's fault. That's exactly what Adam did. It did not go well for him. Um, men were accountable before God for leading the nation of Israel away from her God. Okay? Tag that, put it over there, and come back. The depth of this love shown from God to his people is not simply as a king, but also as a father and a husband. Surely Israel was more than a vassal to God. Michael Williams, the author of the book that we've been walking through, he concludes his thoughts on this relationship uh, and, it's, and it being far more than simply a treaty. Was, he says this, a covenant can also be broken, but the point at which this transpires is, is less clear. 
Because in a covenant, the focus is not this itemized list of stipulations, but it's on the quality of the relationship. That's what God wants. God does not want do this and don't do this. That's, that's part of it, but what more, what God wants, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Trust me, know me. I'll finish back at the beginning and then I'll, I'll give you uh, our assignment for this week. Um, we're going to see Israel rebel and sin. Take my word for it, all right? We're going to enter into that and they're going to do it a lot. And so are we. But it's important also that we recognize here that God doesn't rescue Israel out of her sinfulness. He is redeeming her out of her oppression. Think about the trauma, the hurt, the distrust, and the anger and the fear that must have accompanied this person after four, this, this, this people after 400 years of slavery and oppression. What must have been going through their mind? God is not meeting them necessarily in their rebellion. He is meeting them in their woundedness and their trauma. And he says this, we read it before, but I want to read it again. Say to the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I have done to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Therefore, if you will... Indeed, obey my voice, keep my covenant, be loyal to me. You will be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. I am the God of all peoples of the earth, but you will be my treasured possession. A nation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want you. I rescued you. In history, every treaty, every religion, every economy, it is the weak that has to ask the strong for help. It's up to the the people to come after the deity, pursue the deity. It is the weaker nation that has to ask for protection. But here, it's the suzerain that has come after the vassal. It was the mighty that didn't oppress the weak, but rescued them and defended them and even bound himself to them. And the implications of this are vast and freeing and hopeful and humbling. If you're like me, my, my heart and my mind, it, it's much like a furs cafeteria. It's, it's a lot like a uh, golden corral. I, I love organized categories that we put this here, we put this here, we put this here, carefully sectioned off to avoid the Bourbon Street chicken from being dropped into the chicken pot pie. But sometimes we need a king. Sometimes... We need a husband, sometimes we need a dad. Surely we are more than just a vassal to God. Here's the assignment for this week. Um, I'm I'm gonna ask for you to begin a new habit, or unless you're already doing this, and then continue, an old habit. I'm going to ask you to begin a new habit. 
which I believe could be the, the Christian's Shema, um, which is to begin to recite on a daily basis the Lord's Prayer. Try to do this at least once a day. Sometimes you may just go through it, but sometimes you may stop, let a word jump out to you, let a thought jump out to you, let the way it starts, our Father, our Father. I've never even thought about that. Let that sink in. This is a prayer that reminds us what God has done. This is a prayer that reminds us who God is. It is a prayer that reminds us how close he is, his desire to forgive us, our need to receive forgiveness. It is a desire that God's kingdom would be made known in us and through us, that we are his, that we are loyal to him, that we're called to obey him, not as a tyrant, but as a loving father. And that he is loyal to us, to his people. So this week, try to do it every day. Once a day. Recite the Lord's Prayer, thinking through these covenant obligations that are not just obligations, that are delights, that are life-giving, that are free. Let the angels stand as witnesses and testimonies of the covenant that God has made with his people God, our Father, God, our Husband, God, our King. Let's pray. God, you have made a covenant with your people, not because she was beautiful, but to make her beautiful. Not because she was strong, but to exercise your strength through her. This is continually the call of the follower of Jesus and collectively as the bride to remember that we are a weak nation and yet you are strong. That you have condescended and come after a humble and broken people. And it's not that we would cease to be humble, but we would bear the greatness of the image of our great defender, our suzerain, God, give us eyes to see the way that you've worked in time and history. Let us repeat over and over again the covenant that you have made with your people, what we are, again, obligated to, but more so called to, your desire to be with your people, that we would know you and love you because you have loved us. Humble our hearts and minds, make yourself known, to us, within us, and then through us. May our identity in Christ be rooted and built up for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.